Well, in 1 John chapter 2, we begin reading this morning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What if I told you there exists in the world today a great conspiracy, a master plan for world domination that right now there is a secretive cabal of sinister characters clustered behind closed doors. They've drawn up a blueprint and they're working in concert to capture the minds of men and women, boys and girls. These agents of evil are embedded in the institutions around us. They've infiltrated the government, media, education, business, medicine, finances, entertainment, sports, sadly, even the church. There is a deep state trying to control the institutions that influence our lives, and their goal is to enslave our families and friends. Now, if this is true, what are we waiting on? Let's grab some crowbars and some battering rams and a few automatic rifles. Tell us their whereabouts, and we'll storm the headquarters. We need to defend ourselves. Well, I wish it were that easy, but it's not. You see, first, these conspirators, they're hard to pin down. They're everywhere and always on the move. They have the ability to appear in different forms and always in appealing shapes. Second, this isn't a new group. This deep state collusion isn't associated with one administration or one political party or even one country. It's existed for thousands of years. It transcends cultures and boundaries and eras. Its seasoned operatives are highly skilled and well-funded. And third, the accomplices in this scheme aren't from the human ranks. I wish this diabolical ruse was being carried out by global entrepreneurs. Greed would get the best of them. Or by politicians. Put a government in charge and it wouldn't be nearly as efficient as it is. No, the deep state conspiracy that threatens the world today isn't a socialist plot or a globalist takeover or some multinational blackmail or even a military coup. We're not talking here Bilderbergers and Freemasons and trilateral commission in the Illuminati or some puppet master behind the scenes pulling the strings. No, the real conspiracy in the world today is being orchestrated by Satan and his cronies. The deep, deep state is demonic. In fact, John refers to it simply as the world. How ominous. This conspiracy is so pervasive, so entrenched, so far-reaching, that John calls it cosmos, the world. It's all-encompassing. No human being can escape its reach. 
You see, the Bible teaches that Satan is the arch enemy of God. And he has concocted a plan to wrestle creation from God's control and to rule in, it, in God's place. And he has been quite successful. Humans unwittingly fall into his snare. Even today, most people are ignorant of Satan's schemes as if they're under his spell. Satan is like a pied piper playing his flute, leading his unsuspecting followers over the cliff and toward eternal damnation. Two kingdoms exist in the world today, and each of these kingdoms has its own set of values and priorities. God's kingdom is the kingdom of life and light. Satan's kingdom is characterized by death and darkness. Guys, there really is a right and a wrong, a true and a false, a good and a bad. Certainly, there is a heaven and a hell, and ultimately, human beings will be winners or losers. Realize these kingdoms are at, are at perpetual war. There's never been a ceasefire, let alone a peacetime. They're constantly slugging it out, competing for the same prize. Both kingdoms want to control every human heart. Satan, so he can destroy us. God, so he can restore us. And Pastor John is concerned for his flock. He wants to make sure that the believers under his care line up on the right side of the ball, so to speak. That's why he exhorts them in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now realize, when John says world, he's not speaking of our natural world per se. The hydrosphere, the atmosphere, the biosphere, the lithosphere. That's not what he has in mind. The world, as John puts it, isn't what God created. Rather, it's the systems and values and motives that thrive in the absence of God. It's the devil's way. The world is a way of life, custom designed by Satan himself. It's a rebellious lifestyle that runs contrary to God's way. Famous pastor John Henry Jowett once said, Worldliness is a spirit a temperament, an attitude on the soul. It is a life without high callings, a life devoid of lofty ideals. It is a gaze always horizontal and never vertical. And worldliness is opposed to godliness. This is why John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Realize there's no middle ground here. John dispels any illusions. We need to know that the ways of God are not compatible with the ways of this world. You have to choose. Guys, you got to pick a team. When Auburn plays Alabama or when Georgia plays Georgia Tech, you can't cheer for both teams. Not that day. Not for that. That's just wrong. Neutrality is just not an option. The differences are too pronounced, too opposed. You can't have one foot in one camp and another foot in the other camp. And the same is true when it comes to life. Here the apostle is crystal clear. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But what is it that makes up this lifestyle that opposes God? Well, John explains it to us in verse 16. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here's what makes our world go round. Satan entices folks to focus their attention in three directions. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here are a few other ways to think about it. Feelings, fashion, and fame. Appetites, appearance, and arrogance. Self-gratification, self-awareness, and self-promotion. You can think of it this way. Obsessions, possessions, and concessions. Pleasure, treasure, and measure. Vice, vanity, and vainglory. And then finally, the most simplest, Stuff, image, and ego. This is the world of Satan. These are the values of his kingdom. And every sight and sound and seduction that pushes this agenda and perpetuates this lifestyle is considered by John to be the things of the world. And it's all around us. It is truly a deep state collusion. Here's... The Satan way, if you plucked it from the marketing ads we hear around us, this is what it sounds like. The lust of the flesh, it sounds like, if it feels good, do it. Or even this one, obey your thirst, as if life is all about consumption, satisfying ourselves and our physical desires. The lust of the eyes, that could also be rendered, what you see is what you get. Our image is everything, as if life is all about keeping up the proper appearances. And the pride of life, think of it as you can have it all, or have it your way, as if life is being the captain of your own ship. For the philosophers in the crowd this morning, here's the world in three isms, hedonism, materialism, and humanism. And my favorite way of phrasing the worldly way is this. It's the desire to feel great, to look great, and to be great. The lust of the flesh, what is that? But to feel great. The lust of the eyes, that's to look great. The pride of life, oh, that's to be great. How much do you do? How much of your day is spent trying to feel great? And look great and be great. And over and over again, this is the modus operandi of the devil. When he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was along these exact same lines. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and... (laughs) She ate. Notice her reasoning, though. It was good for food. Eat it, Eve, and you'll feel great. It was pleasant to the eyes. Oh, baby, you look great holding that in your hand. And she said it was desirable to make one wise. She saw it as a means to becoming great. You can recall, too, when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. Remember what he said? Turn these stones into bread. Jesus, why are you starving? You can feel great. 
Throw yourself off the temple and let the angels catch you. Oh, Jesus, you'll look great. Then bow to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world to rule. You'll be great. Feel great. Look great. Be great. Beware. Here's still another way to think of the world system that opposes God's way. Folks suppress their spiritual needs and gorge themselves on physical pleasures. They gloss over a person's integrity and character and they measure their worth solely based on their visible status. And they ignore the reality of eternity and spend all their time and effort trying to make a splash on earth. See, God created us to find real satisfaction in the spiritual, not the physical. Real beauty is in the inner person, not in a person's outward appearance. And real meaning is found in eternal, not temporal pursuits. To reject the world and to live life God's way in God's kingdom, a person has to put principle above pleasure. He emphasizes integrity over appearance. And he lives for eternity, not just for the here and now. This is so important. Several weeks ago, I was talking to a dad in our church whose son has left home. The boy's at college now. And the dad told me, Pastor Sandy, my boy listened while you preached. The other day, he said, Dad, all temptation stems from the desire to feel great and look great and be great. That line had stuck in his head. And it needs to stuck in each of our minds and in our hearts. In the Old Testament, this threefold concept was so important to God, He instituted a special vow that put this commitment on display. The person who took the vow became a walking billboard for the values of God. It was called the vow of the Nazarite. The Bible mentions three men who were Nazarites from birth. Samson. Samuel and John the Baptist. It was an honor among the Hebrews to be a Nazarite. For as they interacted in the marketplace, as they walked up to the temple, as they moved about in the society, Israel could point to that Nazarite and be reminded of what really mattered in life. The first part of the Nazarite was to abstain from the fruit of the vine. He couldn't eat grapes or drink wine. The second part of the vow was that no razor could touch his head. Normal grooming was forbidden. The Nazarite was destined for nappy hair and a big old heavy beard. And the last part of the vow was not to touch anything dead. If he went out and killed a big buck, he'd be out of luck. He wasn't supposed to be touching a carcass. This man's joy and satisfaction came from the Holy Spirit, not distilled spirits. His attractiveness came from his character, not from his appearance. And his ambitions were fixed on the next life, not this current one. A Nazarite was committed to God's kingdom. He put the spiritual above the physical, the inward ahead of the outward, and the eternal over the temporal. George Orwell once illustrated the lusts of the flesh with a brutal experience that he had one day at lunch. He wrote of his encounter with a pestering wasp. You've had a wasp flying around aggravating you? Well, George Orwell wrote, It was sucking jam on my plate when I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal. 
while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. And there are people today who are just as preoccupied. They're so consumed with pornography or drugs or booze or greed, just making that next buck, that they don't realize what's happening to them. They're dying a slow death. Life is seeping from them. The lust of the flesh is extracting a steep price. Years ago, we had a worship leader who played in a rock and roll band called Small Town Poets. Some of you might remember Miguel. Well, Miguel and his guys, they had a song entitled, The Lust, The Flesh, The Eyes, and The Pride of Life. And here are the lyrics. Well, I feel like I have to feel something good all of the time. With most of life, I cannot deal. But a good feeling I can feel, even though it may not be real. And if a person, place, or thing can deliver, I will quiver with delight. Will it last me for all my life or just for one more lonely night? And then the chorus, the lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the life right out of me. And it does. God made us more than glands and taste buds and dopamine. Stop short of the spiritual side of life that God has for you. Settle only for the physical pleasures that this world offers. And rather than live, you'll be drained of life. A stream of jam will trickle out of you. We are made with tastes that only God can satisfy. And the lust of the eyes is just as tragic. Image isn't everything. In recent months, we've seen this firsthand. Hollywood is known for its glitz and glamour. It's called Tinseltown. But the Me Too movement and one brave woman after another have revealed that Hollywood has a dark side. Evil lies behind the lights. Beneath the stars and stardom, Hollywood power brokers have used their leverage to seduce and exploit women. An abuser in a tuxedo is an abuser still. But what about us? Do we dress up for church while harboring evil inside? Have we done as much to build up our character as we have to shape our image? I know people, when you walk through their front door, you're right there in their backyard. There's just not much to them. What's a higher priority for you, to look good or to be good? I'm always stunned by the skill of video producers what we see is not always what is. You think of that TV family headed home to their house. In reality, though, it's just a facade. And this is the way the world operates. Satan is skilled in teasing us with an image, baiting us to believe that there's more to it than really there. He can paint a deceptive picture where evil appears beautiful. When David took Bathsheba, we're told he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. It all seemed so beautiful. But what followed in David's life ended up an ugly nightmare of murder and manipulation and heartbreak for all concerned. It wasn't what he seemed. He should have never gone there. 
Well, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And the pride of life believes the here and now, this life, is all there is to living. It denies that there's another world awaiting where we'll be held accountable for how we live this one. One day, the real living will begin. You see, the biggest need for some people is to see an eternity in their future. Some of our friends think no further ahead than Friday night, the weekend. Even those who are planning for retirement are still being short-sighted. This world is just a staging area for eternity. We're foolish to take pride in the achievements and awards of this life when everlasting is right around the corner. John the Baptist was a Nazarite fixated on the future. He was willing to sacrifice his pride for the bigger prize. When he was told that his disciples were leaving him and following Jesus, he even rejoiced. John said, he must increase while I must decrease. John's pride was not invested in this life. He knew there was more than just the here and now. He was living for the world to come. Over the last few weeks, I've seen on, that one of the TV networks is advertising a documentary on the kidnapping and subsequent exploits of Patty Hearst. If you're a little younger than I am and you don't know her story, Patty Hearst was a 19-year-old heiress of a wealthy estate when she was kidnapped by terrorists in 1974. During, the, during her time in captivity, she developed an affinity for her kidnappers. A strange bond formed between the young girl and the people who had taken her hostage. She became sympathetic to her captors and to their cause, even to the point of participating in a bank robbery. It was similar to what had occurred a year earlier in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, at another bank robbery. Over a several-day hostage situation, four of the bank employees became empathetic toward their captors. Because the robbers were nice to them at times, the hostages forgot who the bad guys were. They even feared the police would hurt them in the rescue. Oddly, their loyalty shifted from the police to the crooks. During Patty Hearst's trial, her lawyer's defense was that she suffered from this Stockholm Syndrome. It was his explanation for how she had been so brainwashed. Today, the term is used in any hostage situation where a victim develops an attachment to their assailant. It's a bizarre phenomenon when a person loses touch with reality and becomes friends with their actual enemy. Yet I think that we all suffer a bit from the Stockholm Syndrome. John saw it in the first century believers. They were willingly cozying up to the world. They were seeking satisfaction in creature comforts and physical pleasures. They were attracted to exteriors, to eye-catching and pleasing shapes. And they were tying their ambitions to the here and now. John realizes that these are the signs of drifting of a people who are inching further and further and further away from God. And thus he jars them with strong words. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Seeking joy in earthly pleasures, getting fixated on outward beauty, wasting a life on temporal gains is the death knell for a Christian. 
It's developing an affection for our captor. It's loving the very things that are trying to hold us hostage. And it lures us away from God. Sadly, even churches today, in our churches, the world and the things of the world have become fixtures, sometimes even doctrines. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are now embedded in the modern church. Rather than teach believers to dig deep and draw from Jesus on a spiritual level, we supply them with emotional experiences and feel-good, happy times. We've traded discipleship for goosebumps. It's the lust of the flesh with religious lyrics and a contemporary beat. Churches today put on a show. It's lights, camera, action every Sunday. What is that but the lust of the eyes? And when we preach sermons exhorting folks to have the best life now, and today is what matters, we can take their eyes off eternity and encourage them to live only for the present. Is that not the pride of this life? I'm just saying, the world can come to church. Like the ancient Nazarites, John is calling on all Christians, even you, even me, to distance ourselves from how the world around us thinks and feels and sees and operates and show people a different way of life. This is what it means to live a godly life. You see, the Nazarite was a daily participant in Jewish society, yet he reflected values different from his surroundings. He participated in many of the activities other people were involved in, but he was driven by what was spiritual and what was on the inside and what was eternal. And this is Jesus' intention for you and me. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, when Jesus prayed for his followers, he thanked God for the men whom you have given me out of the world. He recognizes that the disciples had come to him from out of the world. Several times in his prayer, Jesus says of his followers that they were not of the world. They don't share the world's priorities. They're of a different spirit. Yet in verse 15, Jesus also prays, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And it's these words that have spawned the famous adage that sort of sums up a believer's status in the world. We're in it, not of it. We are in the world. Jesus didn't pray for our immediate evacuation. At that point, the rapture could wait. He wasn't sheltering his followers from the world. Christians are destined to live in hostile territory among competing ideas and contrasting values. It's our plight. Sadly, over the course of church history, people have read John's words, and in an attempt to love not the world, they've redrawn from the world to monasteries and deserts to seclude themselves from evil influences. Or they've gone overboard in protecting themselves from anything that might inflame sinful lusts. When I was a kid, I went to a youth camp once that had separate swimming times for boys and girls lest we see a girl in her swimsuit and start lusting for her. Legalism isn't the life that God has called us to live. In Christ, we're given the power to overcome the world. Now, certainly, we should be wise and never subject ourselves to a temptation we know we can't handle. But God wants us in the fray. We are in the world. We are walking and talking with people steeped in worldly ways. Yet we're marching to a different drummer, 
We're showcasing a better way to live. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. In a sense, a Christian lives a normal life. I can enjoy certain physical pleasures. At their core, they come from God. A good meal, a night with my wife. I can also admire the beauty in this world. God has created dazzling sights for us to sense and appreciate. And I need to work hard. I can take pride in a job well done, acknowledging all along that the glory goes to God. I am in the world, but I'm not of this world. For pleasure, prettiness, popularity is not what makes me tick. It's not my motivation. I have sunk my shovel deeper into the soil of life. It's not that I don't appreciate the physical and external and temporal sides of life. It's that I have, a prior, I have prioritized the spiritual over the physical and the internal over the external and the eternal over the temporal. Like the Nazarite, a Christian's lifestyle should be a walking billboard for the values of God's kingdom. The Greek word translated church is the word ekklesia, which means called out ones. And we have been called out of this world to live a different kind of life, a holy life. Our lives should prove that real satisfaction doesn't come from gratifying physical desires, but from a relationship with God. We should teach that real beauty is about pleasing, it's not about pleasing appearance, it's about reflecting God's glory from the inside out. And real meaning isn't found in earthbound objectives, but it comes to a life that is ultimately wanting to impact eternity. Is this how you're living? Are you pointing people deeper, encouraging them to be more spiritual? Do you look past people's appearances in hopes of getting to know what's going on in their hearts? And are your goals aimed for eternity instead of just setting your sights on what can be achieved right now? I hope so. For John writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world and how it operates, what people live for now, is on the way out. Core values that have made the world go round for the last 6,000 years of human history are about to vanish. I hope you know biblical and secular scholars alike predict that this world will one day disintegrate. Go to the university and speak to the astrophysicist on duty and he'll confirm to you exactly what I'm saying. The sun that supports life on earth is burning up. It's converting all of its hydrogen to helium. And it will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. But oh, about 5 billion years from now, it's going to burn up all its fuel. At first, it'll swell 100 times its current size, vaporizing the earth. But then it'll just flame out. It will exist no more. Of course, the Bible says that rather than let things run their course, God will intervene with a final judgment. Could be soon. 2 Peter 3 documents the fiery end that God has planned. Our universe is headed for a colossal meltdown where all that can be shaken will be shaken. One day, there will no longer be any fleshly pleasures as we know them today or visible beauty or earthly pursuits to take pride in. 
All that will matter then will be the joys of life with Jesus and a proven character and the treasure that we have laid up in heaven beforehand. We'll live in a new world. If you heard that the company that you worked for had been sold and it was going to close in three years, would that change your approach to your job? I'm sure it would. I mean, you might not rush right out to find a new job right away, but you'll start looking. It's imminent closing will be in the back of your mind. And why give a lame duck job extra effort if it's not going to last? See, this is how we should feel about the world. It's on its way out. It's he who does the will of God. He will abide forever. Whether you realize it or not, this world is not part of your future. I hope you're not living as if it is. I want to close this morning with an interesting story. Charles Dutton is an American actor who won two Emmy Awards for his roles on The Practice and Without a Trace. He also starred in one of my favorite movies, Rudy. Dutton graduated from Yale, from Yale School of Drama and has had a very successful career on Broadway. But before becoming an actor, Dutton spent seven years in a Maryland prison. He went from, Yale, uh, from jail to Yale. How about that? Somebody suggested I say that the first service. And I messed it up. But he spent seven years in a Maryland prison. He was convicted on manslaughter charges. He claimed it was self-defense. Needless to say, Charles Dutton has come a long way. From prisoner to actor, from jail to Yale, from a sale to stardom. But when asked how he did it, he had a thought-provoking explanation. He said, unlike other inmates, I never decorated my cell. He always believed prison was just a temporary situation. He refused to let himself get comfortable. And this needs to be our attitude today. This world is passing away, friends. You and I are just passing through. And if we really believe that, then why in the world are we decorating our cell? This is not our home. There is a conspiracy going on in the world today. And we don't need a special counsel to confirm the collusion. John does that for us. Satan and his demons have conspired to bring us down. Let's resist them. Rather than get caught up in the world and the things in the world, let's live for God. Not just in words alone, but in a lifestyle that reflects God's values. Let's put the spiritual above the physical the internal above the external, the eternal above the temporal. It's time to choose sides. You've got to pick a team. I hope you want to be part of God's forever kingdom. Rather than worldliness, let's seek holiness.